So hello and welcome to today's Pinch of Magic podcast with me, Rebecca Renewen, and we carry on with these exciting interviews where today I am very excited to be joined by Dr. Claire Askew and Dr. Alice Tarbuck, who are the curators of The Modern Craft, Powerful Voices on Witchcraft Ethics. And I have to say, get yourself a copy, pre-order it right now. It's available on the 14th of June make sure you read this book it's absolutely essential over in uh, the witch academy that we i have it's like we've been talking about ethics recently and i think it's something that's really coming to the forefront it's like when i first became involved with all things like crystals it was like magpie energy it's like oh all these shiny things and as i got older you suddenly start asking those questions like actually where did this crystal come from why does this piece of carnelian feel different from this piece of carnelian even though they're both carnelians and it's like oh where did they come from so we have the perfect people today to dive deep into these essential topics so welcome thank you very much for having us i'm delighted you're here we're delighted (laughs) to be here So I have to say, we've got two really interesting topics today. One is almost like the environmental impact. And I have to admit that, um, Alice, your word, I had to Google, and I'm trying to look at it now in the book, and I don't know if I'll even pronounce this right, what an Anthropocene, is that how you say it? That is how you say it. Yeah, what Anthropocene was. And I was like, oh, (laughs) so let's start with you, if you don't mind. Tell us about your topic witchcraft in the Anthropocene. Thank you very much. So for those of you listening at home, Anthropocene is um, a word that you often hear in academic contexts, but I think it's kind of gaining more traction in things like newspaper articles. And what the Anthropocene really is, is it literally means the age of man. So we talk Mm. about the earth in terms of geological eras. So when you, if you imagine cutting to the center of the earth, you've got all these layers. And the really terrifying thing is that the current um, impact that human beings are having on the planet means that when you um, kind of cut into the earth and take that cross section, what you will find in our wake is um, plastics, um, industrial runoff, metals that don't degrade properly, Mm. that the world, the, the kind of most um, important, the most single, singly important force shaping the geology of our world currently is mankind and our activity. It's no longer glacial activity or volcanic activity that's the most impactful. We're now in in kind of this age where our ecological interactions with the planet are so huge and so devastating that we are um, shaping the the very kind of existence of species, the very um, manifestations of weather. It's kind of um, dark witchcraft on a global scale, if you will, brought on by uh, capitalism and environmental impact. Mm, capitalism. So, yes, <laughs> I think there's a topic for witchcraft, isn't there? So obviously this is something that you're very passionate about. <laughs> I'm like using words I'd not read before um but why was that a topic that was really dear to your heart of like of all the things ethical that you could have picked to talk about to do with like witchcraft and how that's been used in the past and how it's used today why was it that that was like the topic that called for you so that's a really really great question and I feel as if I'm often the um glass of cold water poured down your neck in this book. Um, Claire and I teach 
uh, witchcraft classes as toil and trouble. And it's <laughs> a topic that I always feel bad about bringing up to people because I, I always feel that um, I'm kind of giving them bad news about witchcraft. And I'm really, really not. I'm not saying don't do witchcraft, it's harming the planet. What I'm really interested in is the juxtaposition that we see in witchcraft so often between this idea that magical practice brings us closer to the earth, that as witches we're somehow more connected to the earth, to its cycles, to its changing weathers, that we are somehow more closely connected with the great ecological web of the world than other people who don't practice magic. So on the one hand, you've got that, and you've got that amazing sense of connection with the earth that is possible in witchcraft. And then on the other hand, you've got this kind of paradox, which is that as witchcraft has gained in popularity, become more visible on Instagram, become more visible um, in shops, like places like Sephora, for example, where you'd never have seen anything witchy before. There's this very strong push to consume things. If you want to be a witch, you've got to buy this, you've got to have that, particularly because witchcraft appeals in the main to um, younger women. And we all know that uh, younger women have an enormous kind of market force. People are always trying to sell things to teenage girls and young women because they think they are among the most impressionable consumers. So on the one hand, we're being fed this beautiful narrative of, of the world and how we can connect to it. And I think that is the beating heart of, of what magic and witchcraft is for mm -hmm. me. And on the other hand, it's saying, don't think too much about it. Just buy this multi-pack of crystals. Just buy this oil that we're not really telling you what's in it. Buy this thing that is important because it's been shipped from the Amazon. Um, you know, you, you really can't do magic unless you've got 14 different kinds of incense and 25 different colors of candle and, you know, a special robe that you wear. And, and don't get me wrong, I don't practice witchcraft alone in a wasteland with no objects and only eat oats and live in the forest. Like I am also part of the kind of global machine. But I think it's really important that as witches and also as people with consumer power who are currently being marketed at, we use our voice and we use our spending power and we use our intention to think about how we can serve the planet, not just in our rituals and in our connection, but also in what we buy and how we buy it. And for me, if witchcraft is to be um, related to the earth in any way, it has to be in a way that is ethically rigorous and in a way that we have thought through. And I don't think you need to be a kind of, um, you know, live in a hippie commune and never wash your hair to be a witch or to be a green consumer. But I think that both paths require a lot more thought than mm. the current witchcraft selling trend would have us believe. No, I love that. And I'd actually like to ask both of you in a moment like what your definition of magic is okay because one of the things that that is my belief is that when I'm like teaching witchcraft or doing my own magic it's very much about setting intentions and being very intentional with my time my energy and my resources and I think exactly as you said there it's like a lot of people know that magic is like setting that intention <laughs> the doorbell goes to go yes this is right <laughs> or pay attention right now but it's like to set that intention and yet sometimes we forget to be have that same same kind of intention to find out where the candles have come from where the crystals have come from where the herbs have been sourced who created them what was the life of the person that gave them to us and i think that sometimes i mean i love to support makers on etsy you know i just 
you know, if I had the choice between like Amazon or Etsy, I would pref much prefer to support someone on Etsy. And it's like, but the thing is, just because it came from Etsy doesn't mean that it was handcrafted as well, you know, <laughs> because it, again, it's like using our intentionality and using, often when I talk to people, they, we end up with this like intellect versus intuition and I'm like it has to stop being this or that it has to be an and it's like we use our intuition and we use our intellect to make informed decisions so that we have that energy of discernment um so just like you said oh you feel like you're pouring cold water on people I feel like I'm the really boring one because I'm like instead of in fact, I was having this conversation with Brianna and I was like, you know, instead of buying that beautifully crafted broom or whatever it is, or that herb bundle to burn, it's like, make your own, grow your own little herbs in a packet or, you know, purchase your own little rosemary and just give it a haircut. There's like, you know, and I'm like, I sometimes feel it's really boring because it's not, like I said about my brooms, they're not overly pretty, but for me, they have more magic because I created them with intention, often in ritual with community. So, yeah, I just think it's really interesting about that intentional piece. So I'd love to hear, like, when we're talking about magic, what is your kind of, you know, what does magic mean to you? So do you want to, Alice, sorry, Claire, welcome to the conversation. <laughs> Let's start with you there. You. Um, just so everyone knows, in fitting for a witch, I have a purring cat on my knee. So if you can hear a, a low rumbling noise, it's Benny purring away hey, he may, he may <laughs> shout at some point so he may get involved in the conversation as well they can join um, the conversation no problem <laughs> I feel like I've been having a lot of conversations recently about what magic is and what mm. my definition of it is and um as well as doing a lot of other things I'm also a poet and I feel like I have a tendency to get very interested in magic as a metaphor mm -hmm. um because I think a lot of the magic that I do a lot of the magical practice that I get involved in is very much to do with metaphor and doing actions that have a kind of metaphorical significance in the real world um and I just recently read a poem by Adrian Mitchell which is called death is smaller than I thought and he's talking about the act of talking to his dead parents even though he knows that they're dead he's still kind of communicating with them and he still has little conversations with them and feels as if they talk back. And he mm. says, it's very simple, nothing to do with spiritualism or religion or mumbo jumbo. It is imaginary, it is real, it is love. And I really like the idea of something being imaginary and real at the same time, because I know that when I make a rosemary garland, for example, and hang it by the door of my house to protect my house, that if a burglar comes along, he is not going to be physically repelled by a rosemary garland so it's not quote unquote a real physical deterrent yeah but it is a metaphorical deterrent that has a metaphorical impact in the world um and wrapping your head around that I think is part of the challenge and joy of having a witchcraft practice yeah, but I think that's that's true of anything creative, though, isn't it? It's like before you paint something, you have to imagine what it's going to look like or you have to imagine, you know, the, the colours that you're using so that you can mix the colours and then create. It's like everything starts in our imagination. So, yeah, I think that's really beautiful that like the imagination made real almost. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And Alice, how about for you? What does magic mean to you or what is magic to you? 
Well, I think one of the reasons that Claire and I have been, as well as being friends, such enormously long time collaborators is that we share a really similar view mm. of what magic is, does and can be. And um, I'm a poet as well. And I think Claire and I focus a lot on words and the ritual meaning of words. And um, we all know that words have power. You know, when, when a minister says, I now pronounce you man and wife, that has symbolic, but also kind of real power, if that's what you prescribe to it. And the same is true of the kind of magic that we we do ourselves. We also have the power to utter words that change the world. And I think that's one of the huge reasons we wanted to write this book because we believe that every single contributor's words are going to go out there and change the world. Um, but there's a, there's a definition in A Spell in the Wild, which is my first book, um, where I, I try and speak about what I think magic is. Um, and the closest I can come is it's this idea um, of what it's what happens when you reach the edge of your body so when you reach the edge of your perceptory senses and then you keep going mm -hmm. so it's it's what happens in the space that is beyond you and it is the beginning of the world it is a sort of process that happens when the edges of yourself come up against the edges of the world the edges of thought the edges of speech the edges of sight um magic is the, the alchemy that happens in the moments of extended perception and being and and poetry is what happens when you try to go beyond um the human desire to narrativize experience into something neat and say well what if we think about the fabric of language where can we push it where can we cut a hole where can we stitch a new bit on mm. and I think magic is for me a kind of scaffolding around my life a lot of people here that I've written a book on witchcraft and I expect think they expect me to be a lot more magical I'm a very kind of physical certain ordinary person and that is precisely witchcraft it's not some airy fairy thing that happens in a corner it mm. happens when you're cooking it happens when you're cleaning god Claire has to hear a lot about me talking about the magic of cleaning and I'm not a particularly tidy person but it always seems to come up it happens when you're doing research, it happens when you're in the bath, it happens when you're having sex. It's, it's everywhere as soon as you start to notice it and it's nowhere if you never pay it any attention, if that makes any sense. I love that, sorry, I was, I was silently cackling to myself in true witch fashion when you mentioned like there's magic in cleaning and I'm not a very tidy person. I was like, oh my goodness, yes sister, because it's like, I'm always telling people, it's like, oh, I want this to happen. I'm like, well, first of all, you clean the room you know you like clean and tidy it's like so boring there's no magic potions there's no spells there's no herbs there's no nothing until we clean and tidy it's like create the space then we can receive the magic so again I am like the absolute like boring witch I talk all the time about magic having a shower you know having a bath <laughs> using that energy of visualization <laughs> so yeah I love that we once did a yule event where we were talking about things you can do on yule to mark mm -hmm. kind of the the going out of the old year and the coming into the new year and one of the examples Alice suggested was bleeding your radiators so perfect it's what so we that need you coming be into better. winter yes. so that your heating will work better through the cold dark of the winter oh my god I love that and it is it really for me that magic really is that that practical magic stuff I mean yes high magic and robes and cloaks and rituals and everything they have a place but I'm much more like I was, I was referred to people like the crafty witch you know it's much more like everyday 
living moment to moment and it doesn't matter whether in your pajamas doesn't matter whether you're in like some magnificent setting it's just like moment to moment whether you've got children crying around your ankles whether you're crying around your own ankles or whether you're having an incredible day it's like there is room for me I believe there's room for magic in all of those moments <laughs> just like offering ourselves a moment of grace fabulous I, I want to to come on to like why this book why the people you chose but first of all Claire tell us about your chapter because I loved reading your chapter and I was like really they, they kept penises where um, <laughs> now people have to listen don't they <laughs> that woke them up <laughs> from cleaning to penises let's go there so yes so why your chapter and why was it so important to you so my chapter is about the uh, increasing use of the word or the, of the term witch mm. hunt in contemporary and especially contemporary political rhetoric. Um, I'm very interested in the history of the European witchcraft hysteria, mm. which happened between around 1550 and 1750. Um, most people know that it kind of took place across a lot of Western Europe, Scandinavia, and also kind of crossed the Atlantic into America. Mm. Um, and it's really interesting that in our current political, turbulent political moment, the term witch hunt is suddenly being brought back. And we mm. are meant to hark back to that time when people were persecuted for kind of just their ordinary day-to-day lives just going about their lives doing things like not having children when they should have or having too many children or you know not getting married or getting married to the wrong sort of man or being a midwife or you know just just ordinary kind of banal things um and the essay came about because I find the kind of throwing around of the term witch hunt to be fairly problematic um, and I often think it is used incorrectly because very often in our current moment, it is authority figures, people who are in a position to oppress others, who are claiming that they are the subject mm. of a witch hunt, when in fact the true subjects of witch hunts in our contemporary world, if there, if there is such a thing as a contemporary witch hunt, are actually minority people, um, people who are you know, who don't have a big platform and who don't have the public voice that a lot of these figures, like the lovely Donald Trump, mm. he's a, a particular culprit for claiming to be the victim of a witch hunt. Um, you know, if anyone's the victim of a witch hunt in these times, it's people who don't have any degree of power and who are actually facing having the power that they do have taken away from them. Yeah. So it's the wrong people using this term very wrong and kind of being wildly offensive. So I basically, the essay is just a, 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 essentially a kind of vaguely, thinly controlled rant about how this really has to stop and yeah. how it's kind of disrespectful, not only to oppressed people now who are struggling with having their basic civil human rights um, chipped away at, it's also pretty offensive to the people who were actually hunted as quote unquote witches no, seconds. I was just about to say that. And it's like the people that were ori originally, you know, subject to this, it's like, like you say, they were the midwives. They weren't very air quotes, powerful people in terms of like money and status and access to resources. Um, they were just like everyday folk. And 
that happened to them and it's like like you say when you see people with a great amount of power and resources claiming that they're the air quotes victim of a witch hunt it's like do you even recognize what that term is <laughs> it's like yeah. who's taken your power away from you not yeah, I mean, very I'd many say, people I, I'd even go further than that and say it wasn't just everyday people who were the victims of the original witch hunts it was marginalized people it was very often I mean something between 75% and 90% of all victims of witchcraft persecution during that time period were women were women many of them were people who suffered from various health problems mental health problems you know there are theories that say a lot of people who were seen to have kind of quote unquote physical deformities yeah. that meant they were witches actually had down syndrome or other oh, kind of chronic okay. physical conditions you know yeah um so it was essentially a kind of panicked program of weeding out people who were different and I think okay we mm. yeah the, the weeding out the other or targeting the other and I think we still have a bit of a problem uh in our current moment with that impulse and the example that I give in the essay is the kind of I want to use the word persecution because it feels kind of correct the, the, mm -hmm. the current certainly media persecution of trans people um, or people of minority gender identity um, it feels very much like the same patterns are being followed these are people who have a really difficult time in society they are quite marginalized they are struggling to gain greater access to things like basic healthcare and you know just human rights um, and coming up against a great deal of stigma and a great deal of misinformation uh, and it just feels like history is repeating itself so all of that is there in my whilst somebody my else is claiming the title of yes yes while somebody else is claiming that their existence is oppressive to them which yeah. just feels like such cognitive dissonance that I can't even quite comprehend it no and, and I think that's the problem right now isn't there like that not being able to comprehend it I mean there are such atrocities going on and it's just like bam there's another one bam there's another one and you're just like I don't even know where to begin putting my energy to make any difference right now and like you say when it's there's so much that we can see history repeating itself and and I think for so much that's happened in the world we us living in the UK we've had quite a time of peace and it, it's very you know like fairly stable in our little regions and like I'm looking over towards Russia right now going we you know we haven't lived through a massive war like that but universe we don't need you to prove that that's not the case that it's really easy to forget the absolute uh, just abhorrentness of what actually is possible and when we look through history history does have this very uncanny knack of repeating itself and it's it's almost like we're so overwhelmed by everything we're not heeding the warnings whether it's like you know the climate change whether it's the the witch hunts that you know the persecutions that are happening and, and of course there have always been persecutions there have always been wars but just like not on our shores so to speak and it's like but it has that obviously it's always been there but not to like the enormity that it's coming up and I think with social media it's great that we have access to have you know, I grew up on a very sheltered Cornish fishing village. You know, there was very little um, diversity at all in my in my hometown. So I was, I was very keen to to move out of that. And I think 
now people with social media, even if you live in some Cornish little fishing village, you still have access, more awareness to what's going on and other people, etc. And I just think it has its place. And at the same time, it's, it's very good at giving us the witch aesthetic that everyone wants to live up to or going, oh, but ignore that. That's not important. Oh, but this person is like people turning on themselves. So where do you think we go from here? How do you think we start to navigate our way through this? Well, just to kind of circle back to something that you just said that I think is really important. We do we do definitely live in kind of a, a privileged place where, mm. you know, as as people who practice witchcraft, we don't have to worry about our basic rights and freedoms being taken away. But there are still places in the world where being found guilty of witchcraft is a crime punishable by death. There are still several countries mm. where that is true. And if anything, you know, if you look at the um, kind of big humanitarian organisations of the world they will you know amnesty international and, and other such organizations they are reporting that if anything that is on the rise and increasingly the people who are uh being found guilty of practicing witchcraft which of course they're not that's the other important mm. distinction to make uh who are accused of practicing witchcraft are often children which is just heartbreaking and terrifying and so i think one of the things that's important to do um, when you are an out witch, when you are talking about having a practice, when you are talking about occupying that position in society, holding those religious or spiritual beliefs, however you choose to describe them, I think it's important to acknowledge that you have a great deal of privilege in order to be able to do that freely. And it would be good if we could just bring a bit more of that kind of nuance and understanding to our conversations when we're talking about what it means to be a witch. You mean to recognise that not everybody has that privilege to be able to be like, I'm a witch. Yeah, and yeah. I'm and I'm lucky, you know. Mm. And, yeah, and yeah. to kind of acknowledge that we we are all we're kind of following in a tradition of oppression, you know, mm. quote unquote witches, people accused of witchcraft, were put to death in their thousands in the country we live in, not all that long ago, really. It's not and really, so you know it's it, it feels to me like a great privilege and a great responsibility to call myself a witch and to have a witchcraft practice and I think part of that responsibility is making sure that my practice makes the world better you know I've 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 kind of decided on a personal level that it's not enough to do no harm it's mm. it's actually we need to be doing good or else what are we doing we're kind of yeah. failing our ancestors and and the people overseas who are still struggling with persecution I loved a line that Alice wrote in your essay and it says magic that feeds heals and helps and I love that I'm like yes that's how I want to like embody magic you know I I talk about <coughs> excuse me that I chose the term witch chosen is a bit of a weird word but I'm happy to hold that word witch because for me I wanted to be I wanted it to be like a beacon to people know to know that I'm a safe space that they can have that conversation oh crows talk to you too oh I can I can talk to Rebecca about that I can't talk to my friends because they think I'm a, like, a little bit weird but you can have those conversations for me so I think like when you do decide like to, to call yourself a witch and you are out I think there is a certain amount of responsibility that comes with that to I would like to consider being that safe space where people can say, can I have this conversation with you? Oh, this is going on. I don't understand this because 
you know, our bodies are shifting. We are becoming more aware and people are becoming more attuned to things that are going on. And I, and I just think sometimes people need that person to go, do you know, this happened the other day. Is that weird? And I'm like, do you want to know weird? Well, let's have a conversation. <laughs> you know? So I love that idea of claiming that craft is at, does come with responsibility and also a recognition of that, of course, not everyone's free to be able to do that, but it also comes with that great tradition. Um, I would all. I, I mentioned I mentioned uh, penises, so I think we have to go there. Oh yeah, sorry, going, I never Rebecca, Rebecca, sorry. Oh, penises. <laughs> I was like, it just it made me laugh again. It's like men and their masculinity. Sorry, these men in this book and their masculinity. Let's you know, not obviously not not swathing every single person. Hashtag not all men. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you, but you know what I mean in this context. And it was mm-hmm. like, oh my God, just some people, isn't there? So tell us about that part of your research. Because when I was reading that, I was like, really? That is just incredible. I'm trying to pull it up here in the book now. Yeah, I mean, so much of, when you when you read extensively about the, the witchcraft trials, um, you realise that so much of that was about fragile masculinity. And toxic yes, thank you, fragile, that's a very, uh, and, very good word. And, you know, there were, I think the, the part you're referring to is where I'm, I'm talking about a source, I think it's uh, Kristen J. Soleil, who actually gave us a great blurb quote for the back of our book, who writes in her book, which is Slots Feminists, about um, the fear that men had that witches would steal their penises and put them in nests like in little nests. birds. That and, like, little penis nests. <laughs> and you just think it's absolute, you know, it was just mm. absolute brain worms. And yet, I mean, we're kind of laughing, but it's really disturbing. That no, it's very disturbing. It says here that... So um, the, mal- the malleus is deeply preoccupied with genitalia and especially with the penis or member. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Has, again, has much changed? <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, this is the point I'm trying to make is mm. it, it, for the trans community, the, the, the obstacle they come up against again and again and again from their um, quote unquote gender critical uh, mm. interlocutors is the idea that um, people who have penises shouldn't be in certain spaces. And this gender critical, again, quote unquote, desire to kind of know what everyone's genitalia looks like and police that. Um, and I'm like, it's just exactly the same thing as the witch hunters who were, who were thinking we have to get rid of these so-called witches because otherwise they're going to steal our penises and put them in bird's nests. It's exactly the same sort of brain worms. It, I mean, again. <laughs> I know it's really like tragic and serious, but my head just can't just go. It's just crazy, isn't it? And it's like... Mm without wanting to look too far over the Atlantic, we're in a moment right now where it's like, get your hands off our, off, off our bodies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like, please, when will we, anybody have sovereignty over their body? Mm-hmm. You know, regardless of anything, it's like, when? Why, why do people think they can come and do what people desire to our own bodies? It's like, it has to stop at some, well, I'll say at some point, but we will see. I think, I think that is a really interesting point um, because I think one of the things that witchcraft, uh, contemporary witchcraft tries to do is kind of give us back the, the sovereignty of our bodies. And I think one of the things we're really conscious of in this collection is trying to curate voices that liberate the idea that to do magic, you have to have one kind of body, one sort of body, one yeah. accept of body. I look at um, 
I'm on Instagram. I'm very bad at Instagram. I post pictures of my dog. Um, pretty much that's it. And I look at these big witchcraft accounts. And so often they belong to um, people whose bodies uh, very conveniently or, or kind of culturally we've responded to their bodies fitting into certain norms. And I think everyone would love to be a hot witch. Like we grew up, you know, I grew up watching Buffy. Like I've got pretty high standards for um, <laughs> Alison Hannigan hit, set the bar pretty high for hot witches. And I, what I really hope is that or people reading the book can reach this point where they're like, I am a hot witch, whatever mm. my body looks like, whatever my background is. Like I have a right to let my body be a magical body, let my body take up space, let my body be a body that is part of the world and touches the world and is loved by the world and loves the world without being like, when I've dropped a dress size or when I've started yeah. this process or when I'm not pregnant anymore or when I get pregnant or when I put on some muscle I can be a hot witch it's like no your body your body and your life experience are magical now um and you don't need to wait for some kind of um transformative moment um because because you you are already enough transformed you know you're already magical yeah, I, th I think that's really important because we, d we do live in a time, don't we, where it's like when I'm air quotes fixed, when I'm healed, when I'm, you know, and we can just turn our life into a never ending, laborious self-help development, you know, on that quest for perfection that doesn't actually even exist. Instead of just accepting ourselves as like the messy, perfectly imperfect, mag magnificent creatures that we are regardless of what we look like or what we have access to is like I think that's why I love magic so much in, in the way that I see magic and the craft is that for me it's like whatever's to hand and I, I saw this meme on Facebook once and it was like you know when you first get into witchcraft it's like you've got to wait for the moon you've got to collect your water on the certain moonlight and you've got to do all these things and wait for like the perfect time in the day and it's like when you've done it for a little bit longer you're like oh yes okay actually this candle will do and this will do and as you get like a little bit more you're like huh, there's a bit of fluff in my pocket that'll do and, and I think again it's it's like that acceptance of what is and I sometimes wonder like you know we were talking about crystals and it's like I haven't I can't remember the last time I brought a crystal but I already have a lot of crystals and I sometimes feel like oh I can I tell people that you shouldn't buy crystals because it's not ethical when actually I already have a very substantial collection of beautiful gems and you know because I'm because I'm of a certain age you know and have you know been around a little while it's like I already have things that I probably wouldn't buy now you know if I was getting into it now with the knowledge that I have I probably wouldn't purchase some of the the crystals that I have now I mean I certainly don't use um you talk about like sage and palo, uh, palo santo and I don't use those now and I'm like but I have done in the past but then I knew better and then I stopped you know so it's like oh I, I, I it's like walking this line for me going oh but I've done that and I know better and I want to share that information without taking that that experience away from somebody else if that makes sense particularly around like the things <laughs> you know so how do you navigate that well what you're talking about is kind of exactly the reason that we made this book because mm. we started um teaching courses uh, our first courses were called towards a responsible witchcraft 
Um, and so we had people coming along who were saying exactly the things that you're saying, like, yeah. I want to be a responsible witch. I want to make sure that my practice is, you know, only doing good in the world and not doing any harm. But I have all these crystals. Is that okay? Mm. What should I do with them? Uh, is it okay that I that I use X, Y, Z? Is it okay that I say these words? Is it, you know, am I doing it wrong? And we kind of realized there is no instruction manual mm. and a lot of the time new uh newcomers to witchcraft in all its forms will see the kind of shiny instagrammable um aesthetic and think right I have to have all these crystals because otherwise I'm not doing it properly whereas we are able to say because we're as you say we've been doing this for a bit longer we're able to say (laughs) (laughs) you can literally go out into the garden and get a pebble Mm. that has been sitting out there for however long it's been charged by all the same moons it is also a mineral from the ground and it hasn't been mined by a small child in horrible conditions, you know. But people and it resonates to your energy because it's in your landscape. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But people genuinely don't know that they're allowed to do that, that they're allowed to go out and mm. find their own bits and pieces, their own talismans, their own magical objects. And and we're, we're kind of not wanting to say, to kind of wag a finger and say, look, you've been doing this wrong this whole time, or your practice is incorrect. We're more wanting to go have you thought about this have you ever considered that actually you could do it this way you know and and maybe also have you ever considered that some witches do it differently because they have to I think I'd like to draw people's attention to um Maddie Bernhope's essay in the book which is about being Maddie uses a wheelchair and it's about being having a land-based practice when you can't access the land very easily Mm. and so we're just kind of having people you know we'd like to have readers think oh I'd never thought about that I'd never thought about what it would be like if I couldn't physically access a field for example yeah how would that change my practice so we're kind of we're we're, we're more awareness raising than we are scolding hopefully oh no absolutely so scolding <laughs> does not come through the book at all mm. but it is but I also think people that are already starting to ask those questions already the people that are likely to take responsibility though aren't they it's like the very fact that people question like actually where did this come from actually why am I using this how could I do this differently how can I include other people in my practice from from all walks and yeah so I I think that's I think that is important and I wonder at some point in my life I trained as a priestess I got claimed by the priestess of Caridwin and I did some training at the I'll name it the goddess house in Glastonbury which had to be the most white middle class um, training in the entire world and it's like even to gain access to the temple or to the training house there were steps to get to the temple was like two flights of very rickety old steps and it's just like that's not particularly inclusive and I have lots of other issues with that whole part of that aspect but it is true isn't it it's like we have to think more than just ourselves, no matter what we've come up with, you know, no matter our life experience. Well, and yeah. I also think if you look um, throughout history at who, and, and, and still within indigenous practitioners of um, folk religions across the world, mm. at who is a shaman in kind of Northern indigenous cultures or um, a witch doctor or a folk healer, more often than not, these are people who possibly have um, epilepsy or who have another kind of um, 
a neurological condition or a physical condition that separates them from the um, norm sort of normative everyday maintenance of that community. So yeah. their role yeah. is one that is set aside and is sacred, often particularly because of bodily otherness or because of kind of experiential otherness of the world. And I think that we've decided that like witchcraft is like white middle class and female and like culturally that is simply not true in the world mm. it's not true historically and there is for, for me so I'm I'm some I mean I am white and middle class um and kind of socially read as female and um but I'm also queer I have chronic illnesses um I'm neurodivergent um and there is I think a kind of gap for where we might see other experiences represented. Mm. Like you said, the default is like, these two flights of stairs don't bother anyone. But yeah. one of the things I would say to kind of able-bodied witches, witches who are kind of comfortably off, is that we um, can exert our power on behalf of people who can't. So one of the things that comes up a lot around the crystals is like, as a new, a new baby, baby witch, if you like, you want to go into a crystal shop and you look at all the beautiful things and you think, my God, the things I could do if I knew I had this thing and this thing and this thing. Actually, you're the person there who's maybe willing to drop between 15 and 30 pounds on crystals that day. You can say to the shopkeeper, I'd really like to buy your crystals, but I'd really like to know that what I'm buying has been ethically traded and ethically sourced. Do you have any information about that? Can you tell me where you got them? And actually push the onus onto what capitalism listens to, which is supply and demand. If people with big voices say, actually, I want a secondhand crystal because what they don't go off, they don't degrade. Um, <laughs> you know, people get rid of them in house clearances. People who aren't mm. witches collect them too because they're beautiful. You can often get crystals in a secondhand shop or um, on, you know, shops like Depop and Vinted online often have secondhand crystals people are finished with. Or you say to a shopkeeper, well, Actually, I know there are suppliers of um, Palo Santo who grow them from kind of specially tended reserves, who pay people properly. Um, supply and demand is the easiest possible way of making change in the world, for better or worse, because if we say, no, we want ethically sourced witch products, not just greenwashing, not just kind of, mm. you know, give us a comforting lie, then actually that bracket of, of witches who have that economic power, the time and the social cachet to make that, um, have that encounter. Really, if we can do that, then we're, then we're doing a lot of good. I, I think there's something really important in that, obviously, because we forget how much power we have with our money because people we will change you know we can, we can we can hope oh regulation will do it but what will work faster is saying actually I'm not spending my money with you and as you mentioned in the book we've seen that with blood diamonds you know yeah. there was a huge shift because people were starting like actually I'm not sure I want that on my finger if it's going to come from somewhere dodgy but it hasn't filtered down to the other minerals but it can do and it just starts with us starting to ask actually where did this come from and if the shopkeeper doesn't know you'll be like mm, okay then not very responsible or resourced. I mean, absolutely, let them go find out. And maybe the next time they put an order in, they'll be like, hang on a minute, this is what people want. And I think that's how we can make the biggest impact, isn't it, with, with our money. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's brilliant. So you mentioned someone else's experience in the book. So how did you both decide who you wanted or did you decide on who you wanted or did you decide on these were the topics 
and then you're like oh yeah this person would be perfect for that topic Well, we, we had ideas about what we would like. And then, of course, the book kind of did what it wanted to do, regardless of our ideas. So <laughs> they do that. We out, yeah, <laughs> we, we I mean, it's, it's really it's really nice that our contributors, you know, we had vague ideas that we'd like this theme covered and that theme covered. And then our mm. contributors kind of took things in directions that we would never have have thought of, um, which was really a, a kind of pleasant surprise. Um, but we basically we put out an open call and we asked for abstracts just kind of for people to give us notes of interest the kind of topics they might like to write about and then most of them we said yes we would love for you to write about that that sounds fascinating mm. even though a lot of the time they were topics that we hadn't really particularly thought of ourselves um, so for example we have a great essay in the book by M Still about the significance of the high priestess tarot card and how important that tarot card was for M in discovering that they are non-binary and it's kind of a, a an exploration of how the high priestess though that card is often gendered as female is actually a very non-binary tarot card and it's a fascinating beautiful personal essay and we would never in a million years have thought to kind of commission an essay on that. Yeah, of course. So yeah. putting an open call out and seeing what we got was the best thing we could have done, I think. I don't know if Alice wants to add to that. I think we let people show us where the gaps were, because I think the worst thing you can do is look at a landscape and assume that you can see which voices aren't being heard. Because yes. actually there are some people who you can't even see because they are so far below the parapet. And that was really kind of meaningful to us there's also I'm not going to lie you know books are uh, like everything else I seem to be talking about business and money today books are a financial proposition Watkins were brilliant with us I want to give a huge shout out to Watkins for being the most attentive kindest and best publisher they would they have carried this book in their arms like baby but they obviously wanted kind of you know a sense that the book would be successful and that it would have names mm -hmm. in it that people be interested in and I hope that what we have done um is include only essays that have really significant value to the project regardless of the status of the name yeah. but for example we have Sabrina Scott who's done a really interesting piece about online witchcraft communities and the kind of strengths and also perils of those spaces and um, we've got Lisa Marie Basile writing for us so we've got a really huge range of nationalities we've got a huge range of um, gender representation we've got a huge range of um, magic practice actually um, from people whose entire lives are um, dedicated around their witchcraft they write witchcraft books they you know they, they make their money through witchcraft primarily to people who for whom witchcraft is a private spiritual mm. practice and that was really important as well because the other thing is it can be really witchcraft has become one of those hot topics in um the selling of the idea that you can work for yourself and be self-employed and it's very glamorous and you can make loads of money and you can get really rich by being a witch which is like a, an absolute kind of comedy statement because nobody ever got super rich through uh through witchcraft I don't I don't think and if they did I'd kind of question their motives um and I think it's really important for people in the who are reading the book who are going to pick this up not to think oh god well the only way to be a witch is to have like 
2 million followers on Instagram <laughs> and um, like appear on Oprah Winfrey. And um, actually, no, you can be a, you know, you, you can be a writer and be a witch. You can work in a supermarket and be a witch. You can be a hairdresser and be a mm. witch. Um, that, there is no prerequisite for joining the club. Um, yeah. And I think that I, I hope that what, what we've done is find contributors who can give people that feeling of inclusion. Beautiful. And I think you have done that. Um, was there a particular essay that I'll ask both of you this, that gave you a new view on something that had opened your eyes and gone, oh, my goodness, I hadn't thought about that before or that just like really touched you? Alice, you're nodding away. Do you want to go first? <laughs> yeah, so um, we were lucky enough to have Lilith Dorsey um contribute to this collection and Lilith is um, a priestess and she works in the Haitian voodoo tradition among kind of other intersecting traditions and um, their essay is on animal sacrifice um, it's on the place of animal sac sacrifice in folk religion and witchcraft mm -hmm. and um, I have never killed an animal um, and do not think that imminently I'm going to be I'm going to, I don't belong to a practice that uses animal sacrifice. I have done work with blood. It's always been my own blood and that's always been fine. Um, but I don't work with, with the others, uh, the blood of other living beings. And I've never really given it a lot of thought. Um, and in the 1970s, if you kind of um, have come across these amazing kind of pornographic shock documentaries that were so shown in porn cinemas, the truth of witchcraft, um, see witches frolic naked in their rituals. There was often representation of people of color killing chickens usually. Um, in one of them, there's a cat who is tortured, which is really unpleasant. Um, and there was a sense that this was exoticized. It was eroticized. It was othered. It was, look at those people over there being quote unquote savage. Right. And Lilith's essay is the most poetic, sensible, measured discussion of when in her religious practice it is appropriate to mm. use the gift of an animal's life to affect usually healing magic. And that's not going to be for everybody, absolutely mm. not. But what's important is that she is able to give her religious perspective on a practice that is sacred to her to allow people to understand that it's not sexy, casual, exotic it's for others serious. entertainment yeah yeah exactly it's private it's serious and it's done often as a with reverence yeah. with thought and with reverence and love and and there will be some people who can't ever find that acceptable and I fully accept that but I think for me that was a huge perspective shift yeah and how about you Claire was there an essay that did the same for you well the essay that I wanted somebody to write for this book before the book existed was something about um, the co-opting of indigenous practices um, by kind of colonialist white mainstream witchcraft. And Simone Kotver wrote that essay for us, which I'm, I was so pleased that somebody did. Um, so Simone's essay is called Witchcraft, Indigenous Religion and the Ethics of Decolonization, an Experiment in Co-Laboring. Um, which is just such a, a title full of things that I'm immediately <laughs> really interested in. Um, and Simone is kind of a brilliant, thoughtful, 
careful academic and she's written this really in-depth um, essay that actually, you know, when I was thinking about an essay about um, Indigenous practices and the ways in which they've been sort of unfortunately folded into mainstream witchcraft or unthinkingly folded into mainstream witchcraft I was imagining mm. something with the tone a bit more like my essay a bit more of a rant like this is really annoying when people do this can we please stop it but Simone has been so kind of subtle and generous and just thought so deeply about this topic from so many different angles I was like I'm so glad that somebody has written this essay in a completely different way than I would have imagined because it's given me so much more to think about than than I already had so yeah. I'd really recommend that one as well fabulous and when you both wrote your own and you were doing your research I know that sometimes when we write we go off in directions we weren't quite expecting or we uncover something or something comes up in our life and we're like oh my god mirrored did you have any experiences like that when you were writing your your essays so that's a really interesting question so I have been banging the drum about ethical sources of witchcraft items for a really long time. So this was like my chance to have it written down in print. But I had a lot of anxiety about it. And I remember speaking to Claire about it and saying, I feel like the boring granny of the essay, of the essay collection, just being like, don't do this, don't do that. Don't, you know, and then I had a really kind of hard time thinking about it and kind of trying to make it not sound scolding, sound inclusive, sound informative in a kind of neutral way that people could action. And during that time, I was having conversations with a friend of mine who is a really, really avid beach comer. And that was what she took up during the pandemic. She would drive to a beach when it was allowed and, um, and just spend all day combing. And she was, she was saying to me, like, I feel like it's really weird because I feel really connected to everything I pick up on the beach. I mean, her whole house is full of sea glass. It's, it's quite amazing. She's like, I've got to do something with it all. And so she started a little Etsy business selling beautiful jewelry that she'd made with it. And she was saying, well, I just feel like it's really powerful, but I know it's just old glass. Like it's old broken bits of bottle or it's old pebbles or it's brick. You know, often you get those little beautiful rounded mm. nubbles of brick. And she's saying, I know it's not like crystals. And we had this great conversation about how that glass had been continually caressed by sand and by sea and by wind um, and made smooth and made different from its original um, self. And, and that actually that feeling she was feeling, exactly what you were saying earlier, Rebecca, it's about allowing the intellect and the intuition to work together. And intellectually, she was like, well, I know this isn't, special quote unquote but her her instinct was going no I'm really drawn to this this is really valuable to me in my she's she's not a witch but you know this is valuable mm. to me in a way I can't articulate and so we ended up having this really kind of beautiful conversation about actually allowing your intuition to speak up that little bit louder and not to um to allow your intu intuition to lead your intellect um to find out that actually these are precious these have as much kind of magical power as um a piece of tanzanite um does because of the way that they have been formed and i'm very interested in human chains of handling so um if you for example buy um 
a sofa that Marie Antoinette once sat on. It's going to be very expensive because you've got the story of Marie Antoinette sitting on the sofa. You've got, it's an antique, it's got human use in a way that makes it more valuable, right? Whereas discarded glass has human use in a way that makes it less valuable. But actually, a little child might have drunk lemonade out of that bottle in the 1950s, or it might have been someone's grandma's favorite vase, or it might have been um, a piece of a tank that held exotic fish at the Great Exhibition. It, you know, every single piece of anything we discard has mm. a story. And actually letting that be the motivating power between behind changing our consumption habits is, I hope, a bit more interesting, a bit less scolding than, than maybe the essay I could have written if I hadn't had that conversation. I love, I'd never thought about that before. It's like, I love finding sea glass. And it's like, oh, wow. And I've always gone, oh, my, wow, it's like all soft and it's changed. But I'd never actually thought, oh, my God, this could have been a soda bottle from the 1950s or from the Great Exhibition. And it's like, but what a magical world that opens up to you then to pick up that piece of sea glass and go, I wonder, I wonder where this came from. And off the imagination goes. But I do think it's... Um, I was about to say testament, but that almost sounds a bit too generous um, to our society, isn't it? Where the sea glass that is free doesn't have as much value as the crystal that's 200 pounds or, you know, yep. whatever it is. And it's like, and again, you saying, oh, you know, I don't want to be like, like that naggy person. And I'm like, oh, I always think I'm the boring witch. And it's like, because everything, we, we live in such a, like a fast society where everything has to be sexy and like gone, 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 gone. And I'm just like, oh, just forage in your garden or the, you know, walk down this, this, the city street and you'll find something. <laughs> you know, nature will always find a way. There'll be something lurking around that you can use or, you know, recycle that jam jar. You don't need all posh, like kilner jars or anything. And it's, I don't know, it's like, it, I think it's quite, I guess, almost sad that we think because we're saying oh we can be sustainable and not cause damage and I'm saying oh and you can just make anything magical that we consider ourselves a bit a little bit boring rather than floating down the beach with caftans not there's anything wrong with that that's super fun too but you know without having thinking that is what we should be looking like you know it's like I think Claire you one of the things I really admire about Claire is that and um, Claire has the best charity shop eye of any person <laughs> I've ever met and I wonder Claire if you've got any kind of thoughts on this I mean lots then I don't know if they're particularly about magical witchcraft but I am obsessed with buying things secondhand I'm obsessed with going to junk shops I'm obsessed with going to salvage yards um, I'm fascinated by the potential stories that an item could have had before I owned it. Um, and to think of that as a part of magic is very, very appealing, definitely. Um, it, is, it is a kind of magic, I think. I think you can tell that Alice and I are both poets and storytellers because <laughs> we really lean into this idea that there's a big narrative in every object and every interaction that we have. Um, but that's kind of quite a nice way to think about the world. There is, and, though, isn't there? Yeah, and also I don't think yeah. it's untrue. It kind of yeah. it hooks back into what we were saying earlier, you know, what I was saying when you asked me about my defini definition of witchcraft. I can't get my words out again. My definition of witchcraft and it being to do with metaphor. Mm. I think a lot of um, what we do is to do with telling the story of what we're doing, if that makes sense. So, you know, you said the longer you're a witch, the more you realize that any old candle will do. That's because the candle is a metaphor. The lighting of the candle is a metaphor. So it doesn't mm. matter if the candle is 
pin can cost 20 pounds or if it's a birthday candle that you dug out of the bottom of the cupboard drawer. Um, it's the lighting of the candle, it's the symbolic act that's important and the intention that you put behind it. And so I think you could pick up sea glass just because it's pretty and you put it in a jar on your windowsill and it looks nice. Or you could pick up sea glass because you're collecting little stories as you go along the beach. Mm. And I pick up things in salvage yards because I feel like I'm collecting little stories to surround myself with. Um, and that is, I think, a type of magic. Absolutely. I would agree for sure. So going back to the original question, when you wrote um, when you wrote your story or when you wrote your essay, did you have a deeper experience of it? Did you discover anything that maybe you hadn't known before? How, how what was your experience of writing this time? I mean, I think with any piece of writing, I've been writing for a long time, mm. and with any piece of writing, there is so much stuff going on in the background that often never makes it into the final piece. You know, so I think we had a, a word limit of 3000 words and there was so much more stuff I wanted to put in this essay, particularly about the just the introduction, which is about the term witch hunt and where it comes from, because mm. it wasn't actually particularly used during the historical witch hunts themselves. Uh, it was popularized by Arthur Miller, who wrote The Crucible and The Crucible is based, it turns out, extremely loosely on the witchcraft trial that happened at Salem in 1692. And shortly before uh, COVID happened, I went to Salem and visited, you know, some of the kind of important sites that were involved in that particular trial. I've also read The Crucible. Mm -hmm. um, and while I was writing this essay, I was also reading a bunch of articles about Arthur Miller having personal reasons for writing The Crucible the way he did, as well as political reasons. So I think a lot of people know that the crucible is kind of a it, it's the first use of the word witch hunt as a kind of political tool. And it's an allegory about McCarthyism and what mm -hmm. was happening in the in the political world that Arthur Miller inhabited. But Arthur Miller was also having a secret extramarital affair uh, with Marilyn Monroe at the time that he wrote the crucible. And it seems interesting that he kind of uses John Proctor as a self insert character, a man who is being kind of uh kind of unwillingly seduced by this young hot woman and being kind of pulled away from his good faithful home and marriage and whatnot um and it's really interesting to discover that Arthur Miller was in fact kind of writing about himself and of course going to Salem I discovered that the real Abigail who was there really was a young girl called Abigail who was involved in the Salem witchcraft trials but she was only 11 in the real in the real story in the real happenings and Arthur Miller made her 17 and this kind of like seductress so I could have gone into all sorts of stuff about Arthur Miller's interesting decisions around gender and women's sexuality in the play surprise surprise there it is <laughs> oh yeah mm -hmm. I felt like I could have gone into all sorts of detail about Salem which is a fascinating place I kind of deliberately went in October because I wanted to experience what I imagined was a strange dichotomy of a place that is once at once the site of a terrible atrocity but also the site of kind of Hocus Pocus the movie and mm. dislocation and I was blown away by how uneasy and strange that dichotomy was you know I went to Howard Street which is the city block where they think Giles Corey is buried he was one of the men who was executed for supposedly being a witch and nobody knows quite where he is so I just went to walk around the neighborhood 
And I was in this little graveyard looking for Giles Corey. And I could hear people screaming on the roller coaster in the fairground, like a few blocks over. And it was extremely, extremely weird. So I kind of wish I could have put in loads of stuff about Arthur Miller, about Salem, mm. about this, this space that witchcraft occupies in the popular imagination of, you know, it is at once a thing that in the name of which terrible atrocities were committed and continue to be committed in the world. And it's also this sexy aesthetic, it's Halloween-y, it's Disney-y, it's fun, it's, you know, all of that was there as well, but you couldn't get all of that into 3,000 words. No, maybe that's the next one. (laughs) It feels like it's a whole book in itself. I I think that would be like dissecting in popular culture and, oh my goodness, that would be... I was about to say a tomb and I was like actually that's probably the wrong choice of words after we're just talking about a, gra- a graveyard I mean to be honest I feel like I could write an entire PhD thesis on the movie Hocus Pocus alone so maybe I should maybe I will I wish, I wish you would I wish you would give us a give us a snippet of the kind of thing you would include in Hocus hmm. Pocus well I would want to write about how the best character and the most kind of uh, moral character is Billy Butcherson the zombie <laughs> uh, that would be my first point that he's actually kind of the he's the moral compass of that movie <laughs> M- much more so than the goody two-shoes children billy billy knows where it's at yeah i love that you you remind me of something you wrote then the goody two-shoes the word goody mm-hmm. and how that's been like horribly maybe? misappropriated yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah. i was like oh my god I don't like the, like the term good girl anyway. It's like we need to break free of that. Hello, come on, witches. Um, but yeah, when you're saying like goody this and that and the other again because of the crucible. And it was like, my goodness, it's so sneaky, isn't it? How things just like sneak into mm-hmm. our society and into our culture mm-hmm. and into our lexicon. And we don't really even notice it's happening sometimes. And it, and again, we used, I think it was Alice that said, said at the very beginning, like our words are really important. And I think especially when you decide to practice and being intentional it's like our words become even more important you know even just using the word good or goody is a bit of a signal to people that let's say we don't really want in our community Um, (laughs) I mean live and let live with people but some people were just like let's have some nice clear boundaries please so I thought I thought that was really interesting too so what is your hope for the book apart from like the next book (laughs) I I really hope that it lets people discover these amazing exciting voices I'm Mm. very aware that not everybody who has contributed to the collection wishes to have a career in writing some people in the collection already do have a career in writing but I'm really hoping that it opens up um possibilities for our contributors that's one of the kind of main hopes. I um, wrote an essay on foraging for an essay collection called Nasty Women, which um, came out in response to that comment by Donald Trump. And it was through that essay that I got my book deal for A Spell in the Wild. And I'm very aware that if I had never written that essay, um, that was the first time I had written long form nonfiction for a public audience that weren't academics. Mm. And um, and that kind of set me on my path uh, and I'm very lucky that it did Um, and I really hope that our collection can do for our contributors what Nasty Women did for me and several other people including uh, Laura Waddell and a bunch of other kind of names who are kind of much much better known now from that collection 
I'm also hoping that it, um, I know there are not witchcraft curricula, it's not taught in universities. Um, the three of us teach it, but, um, and I know it's taught elsewhere, but I really hope it becomes a staple reference book for people who are setting out. Mm. Um, it, one of the things that has plagued Claire and I is people go, okay, I wanna be a witch, what book do I read? I want the book that has everything in it. I want the instruction manual that's gonna tell me everything. And it's like, well, all of these books are culturally located. They have pros and cons. Some of them will take you down a path of being a Wiccan, which you may mm. or may not want. Some of them are going to involve um, Norse magic. Some of them are going to be about Egyptian magic. Some of them are going to be about natural magic in ways that is outdated or ways that are still okay. Do you necessarily want to read all of Alistair Crowley? Probably not. Do you want to read all of Doreen Valiente? Probably not for very different reasons. Do you want to read the Farrers? Well, maybe, but you're going to get a really 1970s view of the whole thing. And there's going to be a lot of knot tying and a lot of nudity. So if that's <laughs> not your bag, don't do that. And people get oh, like, oh, knot tying, and then you're like nudity. I'm like, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> there's a bit chilly in the UK. <laughs> well, well, right. All those really hardy 1970s witches um, who just like stoically yeah. stood there for hours in the buff. Um, and, and I'm hoping that this book, it doesn't tell you how to be a witch. This book is mm. not about how to be a witch it's a book that's about here are some things you might think about when you're starting off here are some things you might think about when you're halfway through your practice and you realize you've never thought about them here are some things that you might want to reflect on because the identities in this book intersect with some of your identities and it's nice to feel seen so mm. I'm really hoping that that it I mean, obviously I'd love it to do 27 printings and translate into 150 languages and you know but what I'm hoping is that it is really useful to people. Love that. Again, me and you, just like useful. <laughs> it's like practical. Yeah. Let's do this. And Claire, how about you? What is your hope for the book? I think in addition to everything that Alice has said, I hope mm. it gives permission to people who might be thinking about, you know, I think it's really interesting that witchcraft and interest in witchcraft always um, kind of peaks or explodes around times of difficulty in the mm. world. And, you know, we've just been through this pandemic. Politically, the world looks very unstable and terrifying. I think there are a lot of people who are casting around looking for something that can make them feel less powerless and can give them a bit of comfort. And there are a lot of people going, maybe I should explore spirituality. Maybe I should get into this witchcraft stuff that I'm hearing so much about. Um, am I allowed to do that? Can I do that? I am XYZ kind of person. Am I welcome? And I hope that what this uh, collection will show people is that, yes, you are welcome. You know, we mm. have contributors like Stella Harvey Birrell, who is a mom to two kids. She's a stay at home mom and she writes about being a mom and a witch. Um, we've got Harry Josephine Giles, who talks about how uh, her transition was a magical act. Uh, which is just such a beautiful essay. We've got um, A.W. Earle writing about masculinity in witchcraft because, you know, I think a lot, of the, a lot of the time men's voices are left out of the conversations about witchcraft. Mm. So I'm kind of hoping that this book is, is a kind of little note of permission for people yeah. who, are, who are not sure if they can get involved. You can get involved. Come and join us. We'd love it. Yes. Yeah. 
welcome. And I think that's really important because so many people are still looking for permission to permission to be them, permission to pursue what's interesting to them, permission to step away from the stories, the society, the culture, the things that they have always been told to do. So and I know that we're, you know, been chatting for a little while now, but what I would love is if you could tell the people listening right now, what's one thing that you would encourage them to do, to explore, if they could like to do or to change one thing, knowing that even though to them it might be like, oh, it's only one thing, it's not very big, but it's like the ripple effect of all of us doing that one thing can have incredible like repercussions or positive effects out into the world. Even it's like, for example, what I like to do is I like to give my crystals to other people. And it's like I, my nieces, they're really into like, crystals and witches right now and I have such a collection I'm like here's some you know and I know where they've come from and it's like here you go um so it might just be like to donate and to exchange or to give to the charity shop or to get your jars from the charity shop you know it's like what is that one thing that you think would just just one little thing that that you like if we all did this this could be a good starting point I'm gonna let Alice go first because I think I'm worried ours might be the same and I don't want to <laughs> no, oh no um well, no, I was, we can I was, give them one thing <laughs> I was going to talk uh, about smoke mm. oh, no, it's not the same thing that's fine great okay <laughs> excellent we're safe so we now know a lot more about what happens when you burn different types of candle than we did in the past um and also candles are much more mass-produced than they used to be in the past. And we know that, for example, burning scented candles a lot, burning certain kinds of composition of candle that aren't natural wax, release into the environment particulate matter that gets caught in, can get caught in the lungs and can be cancerous. Um, And it certainly can be very damaging to health, especially if you're asthmatic or if you've got any other breath condition. Now, coming out of the pandemic, which obviously has been an airborne respiratory virus that damages the lungs, the one thing that I think everybody could change is when you burn a candle, crack a window. Just look after your lungs, look after the lungs of your pets. If you have Mm. cats and dogs, you have to be so careful about burning essential oils and burning incense. Um, If you have children, be aware of, I sound like those 1980s stop smoking adverts that are like, whose smoke does your lungs and no, whose lungs does your smoke end up in? You know, that kind of, mm. but, but if there's one thing you can do to kind of preserve your long-term health in a ritual practice, it's make sure that when you're burning stuff, you've got enough ventilation in place. Um, and particularly if you can do things outside, that's great, but a lot of us can't. I mean, I live in a flat with a shared garden. I'm yeah. certainly not gonna get witchy in the garden. I think it might give my elderly neighbor um, a heart attack. So. Just, yeah, ventilate. That's my boring witch tip of the day. With you there, whenever, if you've listened to any of my podcasts, I'm usually like health and safety witches. And again, I'm like, oh, it's so boring. And it's going to be good for you too. (laughs) And how about you, Claire? What would your one thing be? So my thing is kind of, uh, is about being more local. How can you make your practice more local? Mm. Because um, we talk a lot about things like Palo Santo. You know, Palo Santo is... uh, often is an often a problematic thing because it is uh, a a sacred wood that is used by particular indigenous magic traditions and ritual traditions and we've kind of stolen it essentially 
but it also has the issue that if you want to buy it um even if you're just going to your local witchcraft shop it has flown six thousand miles to get to these shores uh and you don't need to burn palo santo you don't need to burn the specific exotic thing that the spell you found online says you have to use um you can go and get a stick out of the garden and it's still you know as long as you check it's not going to as alice says release poisonous smoke when you set fire to it it's the same thing no yew trees people stay away from yeah no yew trees um <laughs> see how they're safe can't help it. <laughs> how can you make your practice more local yeah. how can you um make sure that your practice has less air miles involved ideally um my aim is to kind of eventually get to the point where my practice doesn't use anything that doesn't come from my own garden so mm. I'm in the process of growing a herb garden um, and I hope eventually to never have to buy herbs again or um, steal them from the from other people's gardens or the wayside or whatever. I want to be able to be completely self-sufficient in my own little kind of six by ten foot garden. Um, so get as local as you can. That is a really massive and immediate way that you can have a much more ethical and responsible witchcraft practice. And I also think there's something really important about that as well, is that when it's local, you're connected intimately to that energy. It's it's like a friend of mine, she does a lot of earthwork and she says, have a look at the, like the air quotes weeds that are growing in your community. She said, because your community will need the, the property and the vibe, whatever vibration those plants are. It's like that they're needed in that area. So if you've got a lot of nettles, your community needs that nettle energy. Or if it's got a lot of, I've noticed there's a lot of cleavers around where I am. I've never seen so many cleavers or dandelions. I'm like, oh, this is what my community needs right now. So it's just like, there is also magic in that connection because it's like you're intimately connected with the land. You don't have to sit on it or, you know, but it's just like, it's the land that holds you. Fabulous. So tell us where we can find you and what else you have coming up. Alice, do you want to go first? Yes, thank you so much. So um, you've been our first uh, engagement talking about this book and that's been so lovely. So thank you so much for having us. It's just flown by. So we are having a book launch uh, for the book at the Portobello Bookshop in Portobello in Edinburgh. And um, that is on the 14th of June in the evening. Tickets for that are online. And I believe, Rebecca, you're very kindly going to include details in the show notes. They will be in the show notes. Um, And I believe it's going to be available online. So if you're not in Edinburgh, then I think we should still be accessible to you. And if if for any reason that's not digital or you can't make that night, then on the 22nd of June, we are going to have a a totally digital online launch between seven and eight in the evening. And I will give you the details for that as well. Perfect, I'll be at that one for sure. Raise a glass to us. So Claire. Um, And if you want to find us, Alice and I, you can find us on Twitter. Alice is at Atarbuck and I am at One Night Stanzas little poetry (laughs) pun um you can also read alice's book a spell in the wild which is published by two roads press and is absolutely amazing its subtitle is a year and six centuries of magic and it really is just such a great book about magic especially if you're just starting out um i like reading Yes. Yes, good. <laughs> I, like, get that in I there. <laughs> also write uh, poetry and crime fiction. My most recent poetry book was called How to Burn a Woman, and it contains a lot of stories of 
the real individual people who were accused of witchcraft during the European witchcraft hysteria. Uh, and my most recent novel is called A Matter of Time and it's published by Hodder and Stoughton. So you can go away and Google all of those if you would like to. And everything will be in the show notes so they can come and find you on your favourite platforms where they, they share you. Thank you so much for putting this book into the world. It's brilliant. And thank you so much for giving so generously today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for having us. Thank You're you. welcome. Michael.